We'll come to the time in our service now where we'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what you should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Psalm 16? Psalm 16, when you found that, would you stand together with me? And I'm going to ask my wife if she'll come up and read that passage for us. This is God's Word. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing on this time and his word. Spirit of God, we ask you to continue to be present with us as we believe you already have this morning. We know you are everywhere present, and yet we ask in this gathering of your people this morning that as we come to your words, which we believe is inspired by your spirit to be written, that you would speak powerfully to those of us uh, here this morning and the hearing of it. God, you uh, tell us when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Whatever that purpose is in each one of us here this morning, would you accomplish it? Not by my speaking ability, but by the strength of your spirit. And as I always ask now, eternal God, move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Well, everyone from uh, advertisers, marketing execs, uh, to all the way to addictions counselors, they, they talk about something called the law of diminishing returns. Do you know about this? You heard this concept before. If you don't know, the law of diminishing returns, it's basically, it's an economic concept which states that at a certain point, the value or the benefit that you're getting out of an investment becomes increasingly less than the value of the time, the effort, the resources that you're putting into it. Uh, You're no longer getting the same return for the same investment as, as the return continues to decrease steadily over time, no matter if you're putting the same investment in. The law of diminishing Return. So from an addiction standpoint, this is the downward self-destructive spiraling that takes place when the, the same amount of whatever substance it is you began with no longer produces the same high that it did when you began. Uh, from a marketing standpoint, this is why, for example, if you're iPhone people, this is why everybody here right now doesn't have an iPhone 4. If you do, that's cool, but everybody probably doesn't because they've moved on. I think we're at like almost at 11 now, right? Uh, um, why? Because 
uh, innovators uh, like Steve Jobs, uh, marketing execs, they realized that because the law of diminishing returns is a thing, uh, they wouldn't create brand loyalty by just continuing to make iPhone 4s over and over again. They needed to continue to make something new. Consumers needed to feel like, well, I'm getting the newest, the most uh, innovative, technologically advanced thing. Otherwise, uh, I'm going to move on to something else, uh, somebody else, some other competitor who's offering me that. In the end, I mean, this is just two examples. Th these and, and numerous other examples, what they reveal to us is a simple truth that despite what every salesman, what every commercial, uh, what every rom-com or pop ballad might seek to tell you about their product, this is the thing, this is the thing you need, this will satisfy you. True, lasting joy is simply not possible in this life. It's just not possible in this life. The law of diminishing returns is just relentlessly at work so that whatever you thought would bring you joy today becomes like a piece of chewing gum that from the moment you put it in your mouth and starts chewing begins to lose its flavor tomorrow. And yet, and it's the strangest thing of all, even though we experience that same disappointment when we've tried to find joy in another thing and another thing, whenever we've experienced that dissatisfaction time and time again, the strangest thing is, is that somehow it still doesn't erase our desire or longing for joy. Even if you've lost all hope, if you're the most cynical, there's no, nothing can bring joy, you still maintain the desire and the longing for it, no matter how many times it's disappointed. Well, we're continuing in this teaching series through the book of Psalms that we've been going through over the last number of weeks entitled Every Last Key, talking about the incredible truth revealed to us in the Psalms, that the God who made us, who formed us, wants to speak new life into every last part of us. That, that as I've said, if you were to picture your life at like a house, God wants to be given the key to every last room. And the part of our lives that I want to talk with you about bringing to God today is joy. Bringing God your joy. And yet, what's, what's different about this uh, is that we don't actually bring God our joy. All, most of the other things we've talked about, we, we can see how we bring it to God. This is a little bit different than the other things we've looked at because here we're not actually bringing God our joy necessarily. Instead, what God ultimately wants you to bring him is that same desire and longing for joy that we find disappointed so many times in our lives. He wants us to bring him that thing, to bring God our desire and longing for joy. And the reason for that is because, according to our passage this morning, numerous other places in the Bible, God is the only place where joy can truly be found. That's why he wants us to bring that to him. Now, to be clear, I didn't say God was the only place we can find enjoyment. That, that's clearly not true. There, there are countless things where we can and do find enjoyment in this life. But God, what I said is God is the only place where joy can truly be found. And I'll explain what I mean by the difference as we keep going here. But I think the ultimate answer is found, first of all, in just answering the question, first of all, why is it that something like the law of diminishing returns even exists? Why is that even a thing? Just really think about this. Why is it that although we seek 
to find joy and satisfaction in all these different things in our lives, however good they are, however wonderful they are, why is it that they're still never enough? Even when we could say, I feel totally satisfied, we're always like, yeah, but I could still be more. There's always more I could experience. Satisfaction in all these different things still leaving me unsatisfied and wanting more. Why is that? Well, I believe the Bible's answer is that it is because you were both made in the image and likeness of an eternal, infinite God and because you were designed for relationship with Him so that, ultimately, nothing but God can satisfy that longing. You were designed for that, and without that, you actually can't ultimately fulfill that deep need and desire for joy. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon describes that otherwise unquenchable desire as God having put eternity into our hearts. Uh, author C.S. Lewis said it this way, If I find within myself a desire for which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable reason is because I was made for another world. St. Augustine said it like this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O God. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. What if I told you that there was a way for you to at last have that desperate longing and desire for joy fulfilled and to be satisfied now as well as for all eternity? And what if I told you there was a way to do that without having to let go of and lose all those things that you presently enjoy? Which I know, I'm sorry, that sounds way too much like a diet infomercial. Like, what if I told you you could enjoy all the foods that you love and still lose weight? That's not like, I know it sounds like that, but just bear with me. The way to, to finally have this desire truly fulfilled in a way that you can really hold on to and is secure. Would you be, would you be interested in learning more about that? Would you want to hear more about that? Because here's the thing, I believe what we have here in Psalm 16 actually holds the keys to seeing that hope realized. And so in order to help you see it, and I pray, know this desire for joy fulfilled in your own life, I want to look at our passage this morning in just two ways. We're going to talk about the decision to find joy in God, and then the result of finding joy in God. The decision to find joy in God, and the result of finding joy in God. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them up again to that passage in Psalm 16, follow along with me. As we look through this and learn what it means to bring your desire and your longing for joy to God. Okay, so let's look first of all at the decision to find joy in God. The decision to find joy in God. Now before we go any further quickly, I just want to stop and, and define as clearly as I can what I mean by that term joy and what I think the Bible means when it uses the word joy, because for way too many of us, when, when, when they hear a word like joy, they think of it as just meaning happy. Or if maybe they know that joy means more than just happy, they think, okay, if happiness is being happy, then joy is being really, really happy. Like if I uh, won the 649 jackpot, that's joy. Uh, you know, winning the two bucks from the scratch and win, that's just happy. Like, whatever it is, and yet when the Bible uses the word joy, it has a much more comprehensive meaning so that it would include uh, it carries along with it the idea of a calm peaceful uh, contented rootedness 
of a, a feeling of deep security and like I have everything I could ever possibly need in this moment now when I'm experiencing joy. So that while joy it could absolutely include feelings of happiness, uh, pleasant circumstances, it doesn't have to, nor is it dependent upon those things in any way. In fact, according to the Bible, joy is something that you can experience even in the midst of suffering or sorrow. And it's this, this is the kind of joy that David, who is the writer of Psalm 16, is talking about here and about his intentional decision and choice to find it in God. Now, we make hundreds of decisions every single day, uh, some of them uh, consciously and some of them unconsciously, and they have varying degrees of importance. So when I wake up in the morning, I might spend just like two minutes deciding what I want to wear to work that day. It doesn't really have that much importance, but I spend a, a few minutes deciding that. I don't spend almost any time at all. In fact, I don't even think about the decision of whether or not to wear something to work. And yet that decision has a great deal of importance, actually. Uh, I should wear clothes to work. Um, but whether it's a decision requiring just a long, thought-out process, you know, risk-benefit analysis, whatever it is, or it doesn't even take a moment to think of, every single decision you make is based on contrasting at least two alternatives, right? There's at least two choices, and I'm deciding between one or the other. And I think where you see uh, this idea is that David is deciding to find his joy in God is here in these opening verses. And I think this is a decision of ultimate importance. Where it is we look to find joy in our lives, that's a decision of ultimate importance. And I believe requires much thought as we think about our own lives. And I think where you see that is in this contrast that David lays out in these beginning verses between what he found with God as opposed to what he sees being found by those at the beginning of verse 4 who run after other gods. He's contrasting the two experiences together. Look, first of all, at verse 2. David says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, note there, David doesn't say, you are my Lord. I have no good thing but you. No, he says, apart from you, I have no good thing. We'll talk more about this in a minute, but essentially what David is saying here is that the joy he finds in God as he decides to find joy in him provides like a lens, a set of glasses by which he can now look at all the other good things he has in his life and truly enjoy them because he's beginning and starting with finding joy here. He's now able to enjoy these things. Look down at verse uh, 5 and 6 now. David says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Now, here we clearly see that that contented rootedness, that sense of like complete satisfaction, all that he could ever ask for that I mentioned in that definition of joy from a biblical perspective. David is looking around that all that he has, uh, uh, all the good things in his life, and he's offering joyful praise to God for what he in his divine wisdom and goodness has determined to give David as his portion, as his inheritance. And, and most commentators agree that the language David is using here is clearly drawing imagery from when Israel first came into the promised land and Joshua was dividing up different sections of the promised land for the different tribes. He's taking that same language to describe his own life 
and saying, God, your, your portion for me, it's, it's pleasant. It's, your, the lines have fallen for me in the best places as I've sought you for my joy. And I think finally, look at verse 1 now. Verse 1, I see as ultimately David's prayer that God would guard the decision that he's made to seek his joy in God alone. Almost as though he's saying, God, would you guard and protect this decision I've made? Uh, protect me from the temptation of what others might say to me, but also protect me from, from whatever my own heart might say. Protect me from my voice inside that, that might, I might be tempted to compare what you've given me with what you've given to someone else. Protect me from, uh, as I choose to find my joy in you, protect me from what I see those who are seeking their joy in other gods, what they seem to be having. Protect me from desiring that more than what you've given me. Protect the decision that I've made, God. So then, contrast that, what he's contrasting his decision with, we read about then in these verses 3 and 4. Look with me there now. Now, most commentators indicated the Hebrew of Psalm 16 is notably difficult in sections. I, I am no Hebrew scholar, but there are people who are, and they say there's sections of Psalm 16 where the Hebrew is really quite tricky, and verse 3 is actually one of those places. So in, in our New International Version, we have this. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. But if you take time to follow that little C down to the footnotes, you'll see the translators list an alternate translation of verse 3 that could read, As for the pagan priests who are in the land, and the nobles in whom all delight, I said, offering two different understandings of that same verse and and which i think actually rather than weakening our confidence in the reliability of the bible actually ought to strengthen it because the translators are being completely transparent here about where they see uh, particularly uh, different readings different renderings whenever they're indicated they're saying hey we want to put it before you they're, they're, these these things are, are one or the other and and they're, they're related but they could be different readings we want you to know so i think that should really increase our confidence the reason I even go through all this, why am I even telling you this? The reason is because it has great bearing on whether or not verse 3 is connected to verse 4 or if it's simply an extension of verse 2. Interestingly, most scholars favor some version of verse 3, just as we have it listed here, but still connect it to verse 4, which, listen, follow me, means the contrasting description that David is giving us in verses 3 and 4 is meant to describe those who are of the tribe of Israel, those who are part of David's people, but who are pursuing their joy, deciding to find joy in other gods. Let's just read verse 3 and 4 together, and then we'll just unpack a little bit of what he says. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. These are my people. The sorrow of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take their names upon my lips. I think by names there, he's referring to their gods. I won't take the names of their gods on my lips. Uh, libations of blood, as well as the calling out of the names of these other gods. These were common practices in pagan religions and pagan cults of the day. Sacrifices offered up in worship, as well as to, to beg favor from these different gods that they were calling out to. Uh, as you read that, it may bring to mind for some of you uh, that scene from 1 Kings 18 where Elijah is up on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. 
And as they're trying to get fire to come down on their sacrifice, they're calling out to their God loudly, Oh, Baal, help us. Baal, help us. And cutting themselves, offering a, a blood sacrifice of their own, really, in order to just say, please, I'm calling out to you, help us send fire on this sacrifice like we are asking you to. And David's contrasting example here to his own decision to find joy is really summed up right there at the beginning of verse 4 when he says, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods, meaning that rather than finding the joy that they were seeking as they went after these other gods, they found only increasing sorrows. Same investment, only the sorrows increase rather than joy, which I think is just actually a description of the law of diminishing returns. So here's what I think we can draw already uh, as you consider your own decision this morning of where it is you're going to seek to find joy in your life. On the one hand, I think we have an incredibly positive affirmation from David here before us as he lays out his decision to find joy in God despite what he sees others doing, despite what he sees his fellow Israelites running after. And we see the superior benefits already of his choice, although we're going to learn more about that in the coming verses. But on the other hand, I think there's an incredible warning from David here as well. And yes, that warning would have first and foremost been for the, the, the people of David's day. But don't do that thing where we, we look back at, at this kind of ancient Hebrew poem. You know, he's talking about idols and blood sacrifices and calling out to God. Don't do that thing where we read that and we're like, oh yeah, that's what people did back then. People back in those days, these kind of archaic uh, ancient practices. Don't do that. Because to believe that this was some kind of ancient, distant, archaic practices is to ignore the fact that those things absolutely still take place today. They take place today in every sports stadium, in every shopping mall, uh, in every college and university campus, every church, <laughs> even in every computer screen. It, it happens all the time today. Now, yes, sure, the, the gods of David's day had names like Baal and Molech and all these things. But you've got to remember, those, those statues, those pillars that they built into which they offered sacrifices to were nothing more than outward personifications of the gods of power, beauty, lust, control, acceptance, war that already existed in their hearts. God's think about it, are still very much alive and well today, and to which every one of us, to one degree or another, still call out to, still sacrifice to in one way or another, in order to find joy and satisfaction in this life. I'll pursue this thing. I'm going to offer my time and effort and resources to pursue this thing, because this is what's going to give me joy. Whatever it is, that's absolutely what we do. It just doesn't look the same, but it's the exact same practice. And it's in contrast to all this that we have David's example of intentionally deciding to say, no, no, you, you are my Lord. You, apart from you, I have no good thing. And what that means for you and I today is that in the end, where and to whom you decide to look to to find joy in life is ultimately a question of worship. Where you look to find joy today in your life is a question of worship. Don't you see it? That's what David's getting at here in verse 2. Look again. He's saying, yeah, yeah, I've got all kinds of good things in my life, all kinds of wonderful stuff that I love, I find enjoyment in. I mean, he was king after all. He had a lot of stuff. 
But he says, but, but I don't worship those things. I don't look to them to find joy and satisfaction in life. I worship you, God. I look to you for joy and satisfaction in my life alone. Think about your own life for a minute. Can you say that? Can you say that along with, with David this morning? Could you say along with the Apostle Paul, Philippians 3, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Can you look at all that you currently have from possessions to health to beauty to degrees, to bank accounts, to family, to career, and still say, God, although I enjoy these things, none of them are my ultimate source of joy. Only you can give me that. To be able to say, and, and, and even if all of those things were to be taken from me, if I have you, my cup is still full and my joy is secure. We say amen to that, but can we say that ourselves about our own lives? I'll be honest with you. I confess, as I look at my own life, and I think about my family in particular, I, I know that I'm not at the place yet where I could truly say that and believe it. To believe that God could take my family from me and I would still know joy. I, I, I'm not there yet. And yet the more I know my Savior... The more I love him, the more I choose to find my joy in him alone, the more I found, actually, I'm freed to enjoy those things which are so precious to me because when I seek my joy first in him, I no longer look to those things to find what only he can give me. I don't know what it is for you. Take any one of those things, whatever it is. If you look to that thing, if that's the ultimate source of your joy in life, when it fails you, when it goes away, when it dies, when it disappoints you, your joy is gone like that. Your joy is not secure in those things, whatever it is. It's only secure in one place, which is why God wants us to bring that desire for joy first to him. Okay, so that's the decision to find joy in God. You, you'll know if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, that's an ongoing decision we make, sometimes which you need to make multiple times in the same day. Uh, and yet, every time you do it, every time you decide to find your joy in God, you root uh, the, the sense of joy in your life first in Him, you find, rather than increased sorrow, increased joy will be your experience. The last thing I want to look at together with you now is the results of decision, that decision to find joy in God. So let's look lastly here at the result of finding joy in God. The result of finding joy in God. I know it seems like kind of self-evident. We should just say joy and then close our Bibles and go, but let's say a bit more about it uh, for a second. I am a pastor after all. The, the results, let's look what David says are his results. The first result uh, finding joy in God, we see in verses 7 and 8. Look with me there. David says, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. 
Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Okay, so David finds both counsel and instruction as well as stability in God as he brings his, his hope for God, his, his decision to find joy in God, as he brings it to him, he finds counsel and instruction as well as stability. Counsel. Counsel in the sense of God's moral instruction. Actually, that's what is being referred to here. So uh, as, that, that adds a whole new dimension, actually, to the idea of finding joy in God in the sense that as you live your life according to God's good design, that, that path of life that David describes in verse 11 there, when you live your life that way like God designed, you avoid all kinds of circumstances and situations that would lead you towards sorrow. His, his path is meant to lead us to joy, and when we walk in it, that is how we know it. If you look at second half of verse 8, you see that the stability of life, stability that David speaks of, comes as a result of being, uh, he says, of God being at my right hand. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I have stability in life. Pastor and author Tim Keller says of this, to be at someone's right hand is to be their advocate in court or support in battle or companion on a journey. That's the sense of what's meant by to be at my right hand. When you think of that being the result of God's presence, is it any wonder why David was crying out for God's felt presence in the midst of his sorrows in Psalm 42, 43 that we looked at last week. I think it's easy to see how that advocacy, how that support, how that companionship that come from God's presence would be an incredible source of joy in the midst of the continually disappointed hopes we experience when we seek to find joy in other gods. This is the experience that David describes, the first result, the next result of finding joy in God we see in verse 9, where he describes this really comprehensive whole person, a whole person dimension to joy that he experiences in that deep sense of gladness and security, both inwardly, a gladness of heart, as well as externally, his, his physical body, which David says, and according to verse 10, that all comes as a result of his understanding that God is with him. I'm coming to you, and as I sense your presence with me, I have gladness and this whole person sense of joy, and I understand that God is with me both in my physical as well as spiritual struggles, and you're watching over my life. That's the result of seeking to find joy in God. Maybe that doesn't connect to you at first, but if you think about it, our sense of feeling secure is deeply rooted to our experience of joy. Feeling secure is deeply rooted to our experience of joy. As I've been trying to learn from a number of stories of people who have immigrated to this country from other countries that come to our church, I'm trying to learn from their stories. It's been incredibly eye-opening for me to hear how a lack of, of stability, of security, for any number of reasons, has a powerfully negative, despairing effect on what should otherwise be an experience of joy. So our sense of security and, and, and stability powerfully influences our understanding and, and feeling of joy. And David says, I have that. I have that in you when I come to you for it. What I find instructive about all these verses uh, is that the, the results that David experiences as a result of, of trying to find his joy in God, what we see is that nowhere, 
Actually, nowhere in the entire psalm even is the experience of joy said to be possible only in the absence of things like sorrow and suffering or difficulties and danger. In fact, from the very first lines of the psalm, it seems as though David's experience of joy in God takes place in the midst of all those things. Which I know, that's actually like, it's completely contrary to how we think about what joy looks like. And I think one of the reasons is, again, because so often we think of joy as just being happy. How can I experience joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of danger? I think for most of us, we think of joy as something that's experienced in the absence of suffering, in the absence of danger, or at least on the other side of it. So joy is something I will experience. I will experience joy when I've completed that marathon. I will experience joy when I'm finally in the place where I'm not struggling to make ends meet financially anymore. Then I'll experience joy. I'll experience joy when I've completed my cancer treatments. Then then I'll be joyful. Or for those of you who who struggle with something like comparison regularly in your life, I'll experience joy when my marriage, when my vacations, when my wardrobe, when my kitchen renovation looks like what I see on my Instagram feed. Then, Then I'll be joyful, yes. It's something that, it's over here, it's on the other side of these difficulties. David says, no, it's something we can experience right in the midst of them. Then there's no question, you know what David does? He he sees a future aspect to joy that will be experienced in his life when he finally rests secure in God's eternally joyful presence. But the majority of the joy that David describes here is something he's experiencing presently, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of dangers in his life. And in fact, when you look to the New Testament, those of you who are here for the I Am series will remember how Jesus' words in John 10, 10, when he said, in the midst of all the death and destruction that the enemy comes to bring, he says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. And if you remember how that word Jesus used for life, zoe, wasn't just physical life. He didn't use the word bios. He used the word zoe, which actually implies a joyful experience of life that transcends the mere just living, just being alive. It's it's an experience of joyful uh, life, uh, an abundance of joy. That's what Jesus said he came to bring. And it wasn't just some future experience that he was saying we were going to have. He said, I've come to bring that joyful Zoe life now, presently as well. Keller says it this way. While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys for seeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers you to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. When it comes to our experience of joy, when we bring that decision to God and we decide to find our joy, first of all, in him, there is no greater joy nor deliverance from coming sorrow that we can find in Jesus than in his victory over sin and the grave in his death and resurrection. Which may not be immediately apparent as you read through this psalm, although David does seem to imply some kind of future eternal joy that will be experienced in God's presence after his death. But where you see this most clearly is actually in the way Peter and Paul quote and then apply Psalm 16 in the New Testament in their preaching of the gospel. First of all, 
in uh, Acts chapter 2, when Peter is giving the very first Christian sermon at Pentecost, he quotes Psalm 16 in referring to the hope and the reality of Jesus' resurrection. So he talks about how, how Christ, he was crucified according to God's set plan. You thought you put him to death, but this was God's plan. And he says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now listen, this is in Peter's sermon. David says about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to be the path of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of a resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. Later on, Paul, Pisidian Antioch, Acts chapter 13, he says, We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But... The one whom God raised from the dead will not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. You see it now? Jesus' victory over sin, Jesus' victory over the grave secures our experience of joy for all time. Because think about it, what's, what's the one thing that threatens to rob every single one of us of our joy, no matter how seemingly perfect and joyful your life is right now? It's death. Just someday, even the most joyful, secure, fulfilled person you know will close their eyes in death, and at that point, the Bible is making that apart from God, that will become the moment where their experience of joy will end. No matter how amazing and joyful your life might, might be right now, at some point, we don't know when, that joy will end apart from God, which hammers home David's words all the more in the second half of verse 2. Apart from you, I have no good thing. There's nothing that you can hold on to in this life that can't be taken from you in a moment by death. But don't you see the hope? The hope of the gospel here. It's that because Jesus came and won the victory over death, now when I put my faith in him and decide to find my joy in him, I experience joy in him as well as his good gifts now. But now death is something that can no longer have the power to end the experience. It's going to just continue on. In fact, for the believer in Jesus, death is the means by which I enter into an experience of joy in God's presence that I couldn't even experience in this present life an even greater experience of joy that will be for all eternity and never end. 
Oh, I pray that you would know the joy of a relationship with God through his son, Jesus. As I said when we began, it's what, it's what you were designed for. There's no question. I mean, think of your life, you look around. There's all kinds of incredible things in this life. Wonderful things in this world that, that we enjoy. And the message of the Bible, right from the very first page, is that that's the reason God created all those things, for our enjoyment, yes. But whatever hope for joy and, and complete satisfaction that those good things may appear to offer, there's only one gift that God has given to which you can truly look and actually find it, and that's Jesus. That's the one place. And the incredible hope offered us in God's word is that when you seek to find your joy in him, when you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all those other things, all those other things that you presently find enjoyment in will be added unto you as well. You get both. <laughs>